This episode is dedicated to Alan Ng, Alex Whistler, Stephen Tran Craig, and Robin Murray for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is a special guest lecture Sam gave for the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design on how to apply philosophy outside of the academy. The lecture was hosted by Dr. Gregory B. Sadler. All right, uh, students, this is uh, Sam Yang, and he is one of the hosts and I believe originators of the Southpaw podcast, one of the you could call it roughly uh, philosophy-focused podcast, although there's a lot more to it than than just that, that I like to listen to. I, I get a lot of benefit out of it, and I think some of you students would as well. Um, I have a, a lot of questions for Sam that I'm going to throw at him, but um, before that, do you, Sam, do you, have, do you have anything that you want to say by way of introduction or about the podcast? I mean, I think that's a good introduction. I think people probably know me better as liberation martial artist on Twitter. I think a lot of people know me through the things I'm posting online. If you are a public figure online, they know your handle better than your real name. Yeah. So so actually let's let's start there. Liberation martial artist. What what does that mean for my students who might not be that into martial arts? Um it's bidirectional. I think what I'm trying to convey is that liberatory politics informs my martial art and how I practice it as a practitioner, but also as a martial artist, my lens is bottom up. For philosophy students, the description would be standpoint epistemology, right? Yeah. I'm looking at it from the bottom. I'm perceiving martial arts as an art form or the intent is for the bottom to rise up. So I am looking at it from there. And then I'm also applying that lens to politics. So either way, however I get there, I'm going to end up in liberation politics. So when, when you're talking about martial arts and its you know, form and stuff like that, you, you know, listening to you, you cover a lot of ground. So you talk about the economics of martial arts. You talk about how different um, schools um, wind up fitting into certain politics, reinforcing ways of looking at the world. Um, there's a lot of interconnections between the worlds of martial arts and sports more generally in quite a few of your episodes as well. And then you also have some that are just like straight analysis of what happened in, in this match here, right? Uh, and everything in between. So um, I guess, you know, one of the questions that this this raises is um, that's a lot of, of – uh, uh, scope. And do you see there being like, I, I, there's a liberation uh, aspect. Is that the main thing that's tying all this this stuff together? Or or is it rather you've got a bunch of different things that are connected, but there is no one single essence or uh, constant focus that, that is motivating it? I think that's something I've been trying to figure out. There definitely is a through line, but trying to come up with a thesis for that has been difficult. Yeah. And uh, I want to be able to describe it without mentioning somebody like Joe Rogan, 
But as of right now, it's really difficult to do that. For people who don't know who he is, he's probably the most popular, most famous podcaster as of right now. And some might argue he is the most influential like media person. He has a lot of sway in public opinion now. Yeah, I think he's indicative of the generation of social media, internet, podcasts, like alternative media, right? And so I think if you are a fan of his or the cottage industry of podcasts and media people that have come off of his template, then everything that you just described isn't that odd. If you have more of a lens of the world that is more of a traditional, masculine, conservative not just political, but cultural view of the world, then martial arts, philosophy, politics, they don't seem disparate. If you don't have that lens, then because you only have Joe Rogan, all of that seems like unrelated. But there's a lot of us who train martial arts who don't like Joe Rogan and don't like that lens. But I think what is common amongst martial artists is they're not just interested in martial arts which is that they might train martial arts, but they don't necessarily think of that as their primary identity, right? I think there's like two ways we can look at it. People who are, let's say, an academic or they're a teacher or they have some other job, but they happen to train martial arts because all kinds of people train martial arts, right? And then let's say there's people who are much more serious about martial art, but martial arts isn't the only thing that they're interested in. And I find that people who are whether they're very much into martial arts or do it casually, they tend to be people who are interested in a lot of things. They tend to be much more curious about the world. And that could be left-facing or right-facing. And so for the right-facing side of media, all of that combination isn't weird and they cater to that. And in lieu of actual philosophy, I would say when they talk about philosophy, they're talking more about self-help or like motivational stuff or like Zig Ziglar, right? Yeah. And then they'll quote like Napoleon Hill or somebody like that. Yeah, yeah. But there's another side that's actually interested in actual philosophy and more left-facing things. And for people who are interested in that, whether they're interested in martial arts or they are a martial artist interested in other things, there wasn't anybody catering to them. And so... Since there was nothing out there, then I decided with a friend, maybe we should do that. And so we did. Okay. So there's so much I'd like to follow up on with that, but I want to come back to something that you said very early on. You used the word... Um, liberatory. Liberatory. Okay. So um, you come at things from a approach from the left, but it seems to me like there's you know, those aren't exactly synonyms, liberatory and leftist, right? And um, the right is also a bit more complicated. You know, we could talk about um, culture being right wing in the sense of like promoting traditional hierarchies and, and gender roles and stuff like that. Or we could just say, well, letting the market dominate is also kind of its own rightist thing, but it, but sometimes, you know, in confluence with that. So why, why do you use, I think it's very important that you use the word liberatory rather than just saying, eh, I'm on the left. Cause that, that sounds more like I'm on team X and, and the liberatory thing it captures something that I think has been sometimes left out of um, important conversations. And, it, and it's something different than just being, say, in a generic sense, progressive, right? So what, is, what does that mean for you to be focused on what's liberatory? Well, I think to explain that is to also explain how I know you. Okay. And before we even had this conversation, I was already following you. And you were one of many philosophy educators that I followed online. So to connect it back to martial arts is my interest in martial arts wasn't just about martial arts. It was also I was interested in philosophy. It wasn't necessarily that martial arts made me interested in philosophy. The same part of me that was interested in martial arts was also interested in philosophy, right? There was something about both of those things that itched the same part of my brain. And when I went into martial art, I realized there wasn't, there's a lot of claim that martial arts is very philosophical and you could look at it from a philosophical lens, but if you actually take a class, it's not very philosophical. And oftentimes it goes back to like self-help or a lot of like tropes, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of it is like the instructor watched the karate kid and they're 
parroting ideas from that movie, right? So from there, I wanted to be more rigorous about this. So I started reading books, looking into it. So my journey into philosophy is a little different from a lot of other people who might come from it more from a Western tradition. I was much more interested because of martial arts, I think, in um, Eastern philosophy. And Eastern philosophy, like we talked about with the term the left or progressive, it's a very big catch-all term. You have, you know, all kinds of different, you could even say Eastern analytical versus, you know, different other schools of thought, right? So from there, then I wanted to get into the more academic Western. Uh, when I say academic, I mean academia in where I live, right? In the United States, right? What's taught there. Yeah. And so I started reading that even before I got to college. And when I got to college, I wasn't a philosophy major, but I did take two years worth of philosophy. And it's something that I've always been interested in. And then I want to continue that. Once podcasts and YouTube channels, it was like fantastic because then now there's like academics that I could never take classes with offering stuff online, explaining stuff a lot better. And I think because they know they're not teaching their students, they're teaching it in a way that's much more accessible, right? Yeah. So that's how I found somebody like you and some of the other great YouTube channels that cover philosophy. So why I bring that up in answering your question is because in studying philosophy and in the pursuit of philosophy, philosophical thinking, it taught me or maybe helped me develop an ability to challenge my defaults. So whatever I'm thinking are really a set of like default ideas. Yeah. And the philosophy is always challenging those things, right? There's all these like stories about to use a cliche, the dark night of the soul, right? Right. Yeah. Where philosophers are like dealing with these ideas and it's just messing them up so much, right? They're so depressed from it. And I definitely know what that feels like. <laughs> so philosophy taught me that I do have a set of defaults. And in thinking about a new idea, if I feel that it is valid, then it is not just about thinking that it is valid. Now I have to recalibrate. Mm -hmm. It's not just about this idea in isolation. It's about this idea. How does that affect everything else? Because it does. If it's a big idea, then it does touch and impact everything else, I think, right? So that means then everything else I think has to recalibrate if this is now my truth, right? So that ability that I'm constantly trying to cultivate through philosophical thinking is then thinking about hegemony. Yeah. And then liberation to me is about breaking these hegemonies, whether it's like capitalism or white supremacy or patriarchy, whatever those things are, these are hegemonic things that we take as just normal when it's just a set of defaults, right? Yeah. And so liberation to me then is a, is a simpler way than what I just described, right? The breaking of defaults. Liberation to me is everything I just described, this breaking of those defaults and recalibrating. So it ends up being a sort of resistance, but not necessarily like going out into the streets and you know holding up signs and stuff like that. It's more, uh, it, well, I mean, it could include that, but it could also include the practice that you have of doing the podcast day in, day out, bringing up things that need to be brought up. It can include looking at one's own life and commitments and how things have gone up to this point. Um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. So I, I'm not uh, somebody who would describe myself as being on the left. But what I found in recent years is because I'm a virtue ethicist um, and because so much on the right has been so uniformly terrible and mean-spirited and, and you know, just no concern for the common good whatsoever, that I've gotten very much pushed over uh, in, in, into the uh, onto the left, uh, you know, in terms of like uh, voting and support and uh, critiques and things like that. And, and I think that's reflective of the fact that, I mean, you brought up um, philosophy's capacity to make us, to denaturalize de is how literary theorists talk about a world that we live in where we might take those rigid gender roles for, for granted, right? But if we read um, Plato and the Republic, you know, that by itself, this, this text from two millennia ago in a very, what would strike us as a very conservative um, culture 
you know, he's saying, well, you know, men, women can do the same things. I, I realize this sounds kind of silly, but that's because they have similar souls in certain respects. Some of them are more, I'm guessing you're probably one of these people since you were attracted to martial arts. And I know I am. Some of them are more thumatic. They have that spirited part of the soul that makes them good for going into being soldiers or firefighters or things that require courage. Some people are more oriented towards making money and, you know, uh, crafts. Other people are more oriented towards ruling and thinking and stuff like that. And, and, and Plato says, listen, this has zero to do with gender. Um, as a matter of fact, it's a mistake to do that. And, and, you know, so if we bring that forward into the present, all these people are like, ah, traditional Western culture, that's, that's where it's at. You know, we have to save the, the whatever it is of, of the West. You can like point at Plato and you can point at all these other people along the way and say, that's not what the people that you are using actually thought. And if we, if we look at these things, you could say honestly and systematically, we find that we're going to be swung into what what nowadays looks like um, being on on the left, you know, caring about justice. Um, if you really do care about treating people justly and some sort of common good, whatever that that's going to be, then you you know you would have to, in our circumstances, say, well, we need to do something about homelessness that doesn't uh, just you know warehouse people or or scurry them out of view, but actually try to make their their lives uh, better to the degree that we can. Or, you know, we, we should be feminists in the sense of saying men and women should have, you know, equal opportunities and um, women shouldn't have to be afraid. If we want to talk about, you know, uh, martial arts, women shouldn't have to be afraid to go into a class that they're going to be treated badly because of their their gender, right? And so I, I, this is kind of a long digression. I, on, on my part, I, I, I don't describe myself in the same terms as you do, but I think there's a lot of overlap that I see between our approaches to things. And in, in my case, it does come out of you know, reading people from Plato to Wollstonecraft um, and taking them seriously. Um, a lot of my peers don't, you know, um, there's plenty of Aristotle scholars who, you know, are cool with Aristotle's misogyny or um, plenty of Hegel scholars who are cool with Hegel's racism. I think it's all about context. Okay. And so perhaps why we don't necessarily use the same terms is also because we're different people and it's not going to be one for one the same idea. But I think also it's determined by what words are, what are we trying to really say with these words, right? Yeah. So it depends on who our audience is, who we're speaking to. So you can use different terms because maybe you're speaking to a lot of other academics or people who are trained in philosophy. And so you don't have to describe these things with terms like liberation or left, and they'll still get it, right? Whereas if I'm trying to communicate these ideas and I'm limited by the number of characters I could put on Twitter, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. Or I'm speaking to non-academics, then I have to get to these ideas much quicker, right? So then I have to use these words, which can sometimes be clunky, but they'll generally get the idea, right? Yeah. A term you see online often when people are talking about politics is neoliberalism. Right, right. Which is actually, to fully explain with take books, it's really complicated because it's not just descriptive, but it's also prescriptive, but it's also an illusion, meaning sometimes they're prescribing something that they know they're not even going to do yeah. just to create an air of like a point you made earlier about markets, right? I want to control this market, but I will put on a false air that I want the market to dictate itself, right? right. So neoliberalism is also even that. It's not only the free market approach, but it's also pretending that I want a free market approach, right? So neoliberalism is all of those things that is very difficult to explain, but I just use that term and people generally get the gist, right? Yeah. And so I think a lot of it is about how we message and something that you brought up to me about even being on and speaking to your class was about how to take sociopolitical philosophy outside of the academy, right? Yeah. And so much of taking it outside of the academy is about then taking that message and making it work based on whatever platform I'm using, right? Well, that's very interesting. Yeah. So the limitations of the platform actually dictate my message, right? Which is something that media theorist Marshall McLuhan 
was talking about already decades ago. Yeah. And he didn't even have Twitter. He didn't even have Facebook, right? I think it's even more true since the advent of social media. So how I would present an idea on TikTok would be different on Twitter, which would be different on Instagram, which would be different on Facebook. And so even though this started out as a podcast, now it's more of an informal network because I was forced to become an informal network because I realized that people on all these different platforms are loyal to their platforms. Okay. And especially since I have an independent model, if I had a corporate model where I was being subsidized by advertisers, then it makes sense to bring everybody to my main channel, which might be a YouTube channel or a podcast, because then how I get paid, going back to another interest of mine, political economy, right? Mm -hmm. How I get paid will be determined by downloads. Then it makes no sense for me to dilute the download numbers by spreading myself out on too many platforms. But for me, because I am independent and I am directly sponsored and supported by my listeners and my followers, then it makes sense to be wherever they are and meet them wherever they are. Because whoever is willing to support me, I have to go find them. Their mere eyeballs or ears aren't enough to support me, right? Yeah, yeah. It's much harder to scrape out a living when you're doing this independently. So when you do go independent, then you have to be on all the platforms. There's no independent media that isn't everywhere, right? And so with that said, then then you quickly realize that you have to learn to start crafting self-contained messages for each platform. They can't be a teaser for the podcast. So you do that deliberately then, right? You you have it clearly in mind, okay, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram right now. It needs to be for this format in order to, to make sense. Yes. Okay. Well, that's, that's quite interesting. I mean, you do it very... Uh, I, I, obviously, I'm not like looking at every single thing that you do. I'm not on Instagram, but you do it pretty seamlessly um, between the the different ones that that I follow you on. Um, so you you know you must be you must have put in enough time where where it's become fairly natural to you. I think like a martial art, I'm continuously trying to improve my process. So at first, I was very clunky, and I would say I'm still clunky, but. I am improving this process over time. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting as I learn to craft these messages, let's say for Twitter, the better I get at it, the more followers I get, and the more people reshare the things I'm saying. And then that same idea, that nugget, that meme, if I take it to Facebook because I'm not as limited, I might make it longer. So then I might not use a catch-all term. I might even not even say leftist because also Facebook tends to be an older crowd than let's say Instagram. Right, right. So then I might craft it in a way where I might not even use those terms. I just describe the thing I'm talking about instead of using a term because I have the room to do that. That's actually something quite useful for me to think about because what I've been doing is is most of my sharing happens on of, of content happens on Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, and then occasionally on YouTube in, in the uh, community thing. And I usually post the same thing in all the places because I'm kind of lazy, actually. And um, what I what I end up doing is I engage most fully on Twitter, and that's where I'll you know be very salty, and then Facebook somewhat less so, and then there's things that d- just don't get posted on, on LinkedIn because... It's not going to work there, but I, I should probably give some thought to doing what what you're doing. And and for my students, you know, they want to be cognizant of this dimension as well. I should mention that that they're not philosophy students as such. They they are artists and designers who are taking philosophy classes with me. And so, you know, some of them are in things like communication design, uh, where they're much more attentive to um, you know these rhetorical dimensions, but. They, um, you know, they're 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 pretty young, and and they're growing up within a world that's permeated by all of this. And I think like people who, you know, grow up in a forest, often they don't pay that close attention to the the foliage and, and the trees. They just s- sort of see through it. It would be useful for them to to focus on that. So so the, your your form of engagement could be a very useful model for them. Well, my audience tends to be a lot younger as well when I'm talking about liberation or what does that mean? If I'm being critical of racism, US empire, of capitalism, then 
that message tends to attract a younger audience because they benefit less from the status quo. Yeah. And secondly, the younger generation are more diverse and each subsequent generation will be more diverse. I'm speaking of in the United States. And so because they are more diverse, they have different types of friends, then they might care more about those, not only racial causes or concerns, but also international causes and concerns. Yeah. And so because I realized that this was going to be attractive to a younger audience, again, then I was like, well, if some young person is on Instagram and they don't commute anywhere, they're never going to listen to my podcast. And my thing isn't necessarily growing the numbers of downloads. It's just to get this message out. And so I'm agnostic to how, because again, I'm not driven by advertising as long as people think about this stuff. So then I have to meet them where they are and craft it for them on whatever platform they are. But at the same time, I only have so much time. I only have so much bandwidth and I have to think about also my emotional health. So I can't be on every platform. That would just be too much. Yeah. So I pick the ones that are most familiar to me and have enough commonality, right? So with Twitter, Facebook, or even Instagram, I can use simple images or words. Whereas if I went to TikTok, I couldn't do that. I'd have to create content specifically for TikTok. So when I post even a video on YouTube, I do very simple videos, or sometimes I might just use a single image, but a lot of times I try to do a very simple video that accompanies the audio. But if I try to be a YouTube video essayist, which a lot of people do, right? You want to look up a breakdown of a certain animation, they will do this beautiful, well-crafted, edited video essay, right? I don't have time for that. And also it doesn't have enough utility because I could only use that for YouTube, right? So I'm not going to do that, right? So from Twitter to Instagram to Facebook, there's enough common thread where I could kind of use the same message and just adapt it for each platform. Yeah, I mean, it seems like with some of your longer podcast episodes, and you, you do have some that are, that are quite long, you know, some of the interview ones. Um, so one that I, I was just thinking of that I remember listening to the the whole of and really enjoying, and I think it was probably one of the ones where, where it really clicked for me that the podcast was the interview about the history of leftist sports. And I forget who you did that with, um, but it was very in-depth, right? So that could... Um, as a podcast, it's one unit, but that could be taken. So many little parts of it could be uh, turned into things that could be then used on Twitter, Instagram, or turned into short videos, I suppose, right? Yeah. So a lot of times as I'm editing an episode, I'll be listening, then I'll hear something. And I think of myself as somebody who's very good at listening and also being a highlighter of sorts, being like, oh, that's an important one. So while I'm listening, my brain will automatically light up for what I think is an important idea. And then I'll kind of jot it down. And then I try to say, instead of like being a transcript, I try to get to the nugget of what's the thesis here? Yeah, yeah. Why do I even care about this? And then I turn it into a thesis statement and then I share it on Twitter. Or if it's longer than that, a thesis paragraph and I'll share it on Facebook. So when you're saying not a transcript, you're not, you're not just excerpting word for word what's being said, you're actually summarizing it, analyzing it, you're, you're in reinterpreting it in, in some way. Yeah, because if I did a transcript, let's say there's a meme or a tweet that you want to share and you want to do a screenshot, but then you change your mind because you're like, there's some stuff in there that takes away from the message or I wish that wasn't there, right? Yeah. That takes away from the clarity or the person is missing the actual important part of their idea. So that's another reason why I don't like to do excerpts because there's other stuff in there that if I left it in there, it just takes away from the message that just confuses the message. Yeah. What is the message? What is the thing that I want people to pay attention to? And then I will turn that into a post. Okay. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think actually my students might you know, this nuts and bolts stuff, they might actually get quite a bit out of that. Um, 
for their own practices because uh, they're all sort of like learning how to you know not only do their crafts right so milwaukee institute of art and design it that's what it is it's an institute of art and design they have majors in these these things they do a lot of studio work and it's, it's also good for like you know making connections for them um but they have to learn how to effectively communicate not just about their their craft in terms of like artist statements but but through their their craft as well and the internet environment that we're in um it really has changed things as you mentioned earlier um it 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 radically altered at least for content production and reaching people the possibilities um you know when my wife suggested to me that I should start recording videos and recording them just going into the classroom, plunking down a flip cam, you know, and and uh, putting it on, on YouTube. I was like, well, who the hell is going to want to watch me? I'm nobody, you know. And as it turned out, I did have a knack for taking complex ideas from philosophy and explaining them in a more accessible way, probably because I, I'm not from an academic family and um, I was always interested in practical applications of, of things. And then it caught on. And I was surprised to see... Um, you know, how many people there were who would say things like, um, you know, my instructor won't explain anything. Thank you for putting this video out there. You saved my grade or I can't go to college because I can't afford it right now. Or, or I, you know, I, I went to college and, and uh, now I'm stuck in a job where I, I, I don't have any intellectual stimulation. Thanks for, for posting these things. And, you know, you, you think about that and you're like, wow, you know, if this was just 20 years earlier, there's no way I would have reached any of these people or, you know, look at right now where you and I are communicating with you on the West coast and me here in the heart of the Midwest and in, in Milwaukee. Um, this is, you know, this is sci-fi stuff um, when we were kids. Um, but now it's just, you know, part of our reality that we take for granted. And so a lot of coming back to these, these students, a lot of them, um, I don't think they, they see a lot of the potential that's there for reaching in substantive ways, not just like in ways that will make them a YouTube star or, you know, an influencer, but it, but in substantive ways that help to create uh, communities of, um, of inquiry, of, of communication, and maybe even of action. Um, I don't know that a lot of them see that potential, but it's, it's definitely there. Whether they want to or not, they'll be forced to think about that potential. How so? Well, it's just like me realizing that I have to craft everything specifically for each place. I didn't know I was going to do that. And then in actually engaging and seeing what people are saying and what's actually happening, I realized they're just going to be in that platform that they use the most often, right? If somebody looks at their iPhone, I think there's a way to catalog how long you've been on each app. And oftentimes it's not an equal distribution. It's one app above all else, right? And so that is their main one. And so knowing all those things, then I was forced to craft it for that platform, even though that wasn't my preferred platform, that wasn't where I enjoyed being on, right? And so for the artist, then I think it's the same thing. You might just be thinking I'm making art, let's say it's a physical thing, but then you will be forced to think about how people will perceive the thing you made based on whatever platform they are on. Maybe if you don't think about it, then somebody else will take the initiative and create the narrative for your work for good or bad, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It could be like, you know, they take a picture of it, turn it into a meme and make fun of you on Twitter, right? Yeah. But if it's a video on Instagram or TikTok, maybe it's harder to make fun of you because then they're forced to actually look at this three-dimensional thing, right? From different perspectives. And so then you want to at least be aware of that, that that is going to happen to you. And that's almost like a good problem because if it happens to you, then people know who you are. If it doesn't happen to you, then people looking at your work won't be one of your problems, right? A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, You'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show 
the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So actually, that's that's that brings up something that I hadn't thought of asking you about, but I think it could be very useful uh, for young people to hear about this, and that's the issue of rejection and and being made fun of. If you're out there on the internet um, and and you're in any way successful, there you're opened up in a way that you never were before in face to face life, or even like in the time of newspapers and television to people saying all sorts of horrible things about you. And I imagine because you're, you know, you're very politically committed that you probably encounter a good bit of that. And um, so let me ask, there's so many things we could, we could talk about with respect to this, but um, what's, what's your experience like with that? And then how do you sort of weather the psychic blows that inevitably come with people, not just like, you know, in good faith, taking, taking uh, umbrance at what you're saying, but like just being complete jerks to you. Um, Cause I know it happens. How, 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 how have you dealt with that? I think it connects back to the things that you mentioned, right? Uh, as far as virtue ethics or ethics at all. Okay. To connect it to martial arts, I would say then, a way to think about that is to think of it as code. I don't mean computer code, but like codes to follow. It doesn't necessarily have to be moral. It could be in this case, like codes to follow to protect your own mental welfare, right? So for me, some of the codes that I followed that I created for myself is like, I don't ever reply to people on Twitter or really anywhere. Again, it's not an absolute rule because being absolute about anything will be its own problem. But in general, I don't ever reply to people. What I mean by that isn't that if somebody says something to me, I won't reply back. It's more like I won't go to their tweet or their Facebook post and be the reply guy. Okay. Because I think of that as that's their timeline or that's their wall or whatever you want to call it. Like that's their house. I'm not going to go into their house, even if I disagree, to yell at them. Yeah. And so in that way, I'm able to avoid a lot of the worst stuff. Because if I did that, then that's when like some of the nastiest things are going to come back at you. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's going to be nasty. With that said, that doesn't mean they follow the same rule. But in knowing I don't do that, it, I guess, does something for me where I don't feel as upset about it because I'm following at least my moral code or my roadmap to the internet. And secondly, because if they have some umbrage with me, I still don't reply back, then it doesn't escalate into this thing. Yeah, yeah. Normally, I'm just responding to people who come to me in good faith. Do you block people at all? Oh, yeah. I block people all the time. I do too. And I was just thinking about, you know, you you mentioned going over to somebody else's Facebook page is like going into their house. So Part of my justification for blocking people, and I do it more probably on YouTube and then on Twitter and then on, on Facebook, is that I look at it as sort of like my front porch. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, like my YouTube channel, if I kick somebody off, I'm not like keeping them off of all YouTube because there's a million channels, right? Um, they just can't, they can't participate in, in discourse on my channel anymore because they've acted like a jerk. And I look at it as sort of like, well, if you come into my front porch and you want to act like a jerk, I get to kick you out of there. But what I noticed is it, both in YouTube and in Twitter was that as I blocked pretty, um, pretty liberally, let's say, right. Um, sometimes even blocking people who I saw acting like a jerk in other people's conversations where I was like, well, I don't want to engage with that person ever. Um, which I think to some people might seem a little bit unfair. Um, I found that like the quality of my engagements increased considerably because the people who were still engaging with me, you know, they, they were, People who, for the most part, were in good faith and, and wanted to learn something or discuss something 
real rather than somebody who just wants to grandstand or make a point for themselves. You know, and and people would say on like on Twitter, well, why why do you have to block somebody instead of just like unfollowing or muting them? And I would find that the some of the people that I did block, they would show up so often in my timeline just because all the other people I know are following them basically to like keep tabs on them. And I just didn't want to see them anymore. You know, now some people would say, well, you know, if you're doing that, you're kind of being a snowflake or you're, you're inhibiting the free market of ideas. How can you as a philosophy professor not like be exposed to everybody's stuff? And, and my, my answer has been basically, well, it's my channel. I can do with it what I want to, you know? Um, but I do think that there's probably, a you got to look out for your own mental health um what would we call it justification or explanation there um so you said you block pretty pretty uh frequently what's what's your reasoning is it is it similar to like ah my 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 threads are better if i don't have all these jerks in it or you know it's interesting to me when you listed the three places in the order that you block was youtube than Twitter, than Facebook, because YouTube is notoriously a place known for having the most toxic people followed by Twitter, followed by Facebook, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's that you actually follow that order. But I think if you actually do inquiry about this, there's no other conclusion than to say what I'm saying here and me blocking is all about autonomy Okay, and them getting upset. If you're not there right now, Keep thinking about it because ultimately then you will come to the conclusion that they feel like they own you in some way. Yeah. So who are you to block me, right? <laughs> That's a really great point. I, I do get a lot of those sorts of you owe me an explanation about this yes. kind of kind of thing comments. And that's that's usually a reason for me to block people. Yeah. So even like I said, with neoliberalism, sometimes it's the guise of the free market, even the people who say they're all about the free market, then the free market can decide to buy a good or reject a good, right? Yeah, yeah. The free market is ultimately a whole bunch of binary decisions, right? And then it gets extrapolated, but it's all yes or no. Blocking is a no. Yeah, yeah. And the market has dictated no to you, right? But they don't accept that, right? Then they are not agreeing to the terms of the market. Yeah. So ultimately what I am doing is not anti-free market, right? And, and I'm not even a free market person. I'm coming from this about personal autonomy and consent, right? I am not consenting to you to bother me all the time, right? So be gone with you, right? And I think it's the same way like people can't handle rejections in relationships. It's like this person doesn't want you in their life. And it's like, no, 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 who are they to not want me, right? And they just can't accept that rejection. But if I could magically go into that person's brain and take away any sense of like, possessiveness or ownership of other people, then they would not care. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could frame it in terms of uh, privilege. Some people feel themselves or entitlement, right? Uh, sort of flip sides of the same thing. Some people feel like by virtue of being who they are, they automatically get to. And, and we do see this like line up with, um, with a lot of social power imbalances like men versus women, you know? Um, or we can talk in terms, well, I mean, we can talk in terms of class, we can talk in terms of race or ability. Going early back to Greece and philosophy, right? A lot of the way when philosophy was being written down was through dialogue, right? Right, right. I'm writing these dialogues. And because probably before it was written down, it's not even probably, it was all oral. So then it was all through dialogue, right? Yeah. And so how can people imagine somebody and write a dialogue? It's because you know that person well enough or you've had this conversation well enough where you know where it's going to end, right? Yeah. And so the reason also why I'm so liberal with blocking or sometimes people are like, why did you block me? I didn't even say anything bad. It's because in their mind, they know I didn't say anything bad yet. Meaning <laughs> I know where this is going to go. This isn't my first rodeo. You know, I grew up on the internet. I said what I said then you say that, then I'm going to defend myself in good faith, not defend myself as in attacking you, but try to clarify. And it's all going to lead to you saying this thing. Like a lot of people online say the same thing everybody else does and repeat themselves over and over. So since I already know the script, since I already know where this dialogue and where the conclusion is going to end, it's not just for the sake of mental health. Sometimes it's just because 
It's like the same reason why I don't watch reruns. I, I hate having to relive the same moment over and over again, right? Yeah. It's also something particular to me because I don't really like nostalgia shows. It's like I already lived it once. I don't want to watch it again, right? Yeah. So it's also to just prevent that annoyance of like, oh, this thing again, like you're going to say that thing again. And since I already know where this is headed, then I'm just like, no, I don't want to have this conversation. Yeah. And that's a really interesting point because I, I found myself going along similar lines where if I, if, I, if I can tell where a conversation is likely going to be headed, and I don't even have to be like 100% about it, I feel that it's okay for me to say, I'm not having this, this conversation and, and to close it off in, in whatever way. I actually have a catchphrase. I say, good luck with your studies because it's sort of like a, a brush off. You know? <laughs> and it lets a person feel you know, uh, happy. And then if they want to keep coming back at me, then I, then I block them because I'm like, listen, you know, I gave, gave you the time. And I think that there's something to that. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of people who feel like, the, the time that they say this thing that people have been saying for 10 years is somehow different than all those other statements of it. And the only reason why it would be is because it's, it's them saying it, you know. Um, and over time, I, I, you know, like especially on YouTube, I have come to the point where like, I know what, what you know, th saying this is going to likely lead to this. And I think that there is a, that, that, that is justified. Um, yeah. I think if you're entering in like for the first, I don't know, maybe month or so, maybe then you should be more open to seeing where people are going with things. Yeah. Um, but it'll it, it'll probably lead to that same experience of being like, oh, the fiftieth time somebody has said this. <laughs> I mean, it's probably our thirtieth year on the internet, right? Right, right. By now, if we haven't learned, then we're never going to learn. But that's been enough time where we have evolved, right? At the beginning, when it was like AOL chat rooms and good faith, and you just made friends, it was all new. But after a while, uh, fluency is kind of like casual conversations. It's like a series of like typical, what's going on? What's up? How are you? You know, you know how this game works, right? And so a lot of times with online discourse, when people are like, you're in an echo chamber, why don't you want to talk? It's like you're overestimating yourself, my man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is not going to be a silo. I know exactly what you're going to say. And it goes back to what I said about defaults because they're so stuck in their defaults that they don't question that they're constantly saying the same thing or they're saying the same thing other people are saying about that topic. A topic you talk about a lot is stoicism, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. So there's capital S stoicism, the philosophy, and a more rigorous set of practices and virtue ethics, right? Mm -hmm. So I understand that. So I'm going to have a different kind of conversation with you. But you probably meet people all the time who are going to approach you with, they don't even know there's a capital S or lowercase s, right? So they're going to be like, my dad is stoic and blah, 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 right? Which they're talking about a completely different thing. Yeah. And so you already know where this is going to head. You've already had this conversation, but they're not even thinking about if this is the first time you've had this conversation or not. They're just stuck in this default. And so they want to complete their script. Whatever they want to say, they want to make sure they finish it. And it's like, they're not thinking about you as the receiver who's heard this so many times, right? Yeah. And so after a while, you're like, what rerun is this, right? Yeah. It's Groundhog's Day of this conversation. Maybe I don't want to have this conversation today, right? And so that's just an example of how people don't consider that maybe they're not saying something so interesting, or they're saying something that is ultimately not even what you're talking about or misguided or just annoying, right? Or it's going to lead to something where because at first they're just being misguided, but if you try to correct them, it'll trigger some kind of emotional response and they're going to start getting nasty, right? You're like, there's no way for me to explain the differences to this person without them getting upset. So I'm just not even going to have it. It's interesting because one of the things that I've I've seen a lot in online communication uh, is if you do correct somebody, um, one of the most common responses is for them to ask you why you're getting angry with them. When, <laughs> when you know, I mean, what would display anger would be like you know all caps or exclamation points or swearing at them or something like that. 
and I think a lot of it is projection. They they view themselves as the kind of person who, if they were being, you know, uh, if they if somebody was coming at them with their stuff, they they would be angry about it. Uh, or when they do corrections or anything, they're motivated by by some sort of negative affect. Uh, whereas a lot of the time, for me, it's just like no, the stoicism thing, right? I'll point out. No, buddy, that's that's uh, lowercase s stoicism, not actual uppercase s stoicism. Here's a link to where Donald Robertson has written a piece on that, you know, and and I do get that quite often. And I mean, it's it's kind of ironic for me because I am a person who has struggled a lot with anger over the course of my life, and I got into studying the Stoics and some other uh, theorists in in part to try to you know find resources for anger management, you know. Um, Probably now that I think about it, an issue that that comes up a lot in martial arts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how to learn learning how to temper the the anger response into something that's more more productive. Um, so you know they they could have been right like twenty years ago. Maybe I would have been writing them out of anger at that point in time, but I'm not now. And for them to pick up on it is, I, I think, very often a way for them to. You know, to have, have an upper hand. If, if somebody else is becoming emotional, I wonder. I mean, if you get this, where people accuse you of emotionality when, when you're not actually writing from an emotional space. <laughs> so sometimes maybe that'll be like the third thing they might say, and I already know we're gonna get there, so I just stop. <laughs> the way I approached even any of these posts was like, I'm just talking to myself. I don't know if anybody's gonna be reading this or listening to this. I'm just gonna stand on my porch and talk, right? And then. If they come to me and read it, then they're volunteering. They have consented and they have chosen to do this. I am not going to them. Okay, yeah. So in that way, since I try to stay true to that, then I'm able to avoid a lot of that. Even with me avoiding a lot of it, though, of course, you know, they come to find me. But there's no way to come out of the internet unscathed. All I can try to do is, <laughs> is like try yeah. to block and dodge and try to lower the offensive percentage, right? The lower the amount of hits I can take, right? Just try to have a high defensive rate. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to be absolute with it. And I think to your point about correction, I would even say it's not even correction. You as an academic who has students, you probably know better than everybody else that not everybody is great at explaining their ideas through words, right? Writing. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so a lot of online is writing. So sometimes people just write something and it's not even like you're upset or you disagree or you're going to correct. You just don't know what they just said. That does happen, yeah. You're having the foggiest. That happens all the time. So I, sometimes even just asking for clarity, can you clarify that? I will even write on there. I'm not disagreeing. I might agree with you if I knew what you were saying. Could you explain that better? And even that will get people angry, right? the fact that they have to clarify what they just said. So going by their imagined responses, like if I block them or if I mute them, they're going to get upset. We can't be swayed by that because they're just going to get upset, period. Not everybody, but a lot of them. And you'll be able to know. It's like that old Supreme Court judgment about porn. Yeah. You know, you what know, you right? Yeah. I mean, 30 years on the internet, you know who's going to be like that person, right? <laughs> <laughs> once they talk to you, there's some people where once they say hello to you, there's nothing you can do after that for them not to get upset at you. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like, don't even bother. We can't be compelled by what we imagine their response is going to be or try to avoid their anger because sometimes there's nothing you can do to avoid that anger. It's just like when I do martial arts training, there's certain partners where there's nothing I can do to have a good sparring session with this person. They will go balls to the walls and try to kill everybody. Yeah. Even if my first, let's say it's a striking thing, I let them know that this is going to be light sparring by just tapping them like as light as they can. They don't notice the intensity. They will just act the same way. They will spar as hard. If it's wrestling, they're just going to try to throw you through the wall. Like I'm barely grabbing their gi, right? And they don't notice. There's nothing I can do to prevent that, right? And so I think it's the same way with online discourse. Sometimes there's nothing you can do to prevent it other than just not engage at all. Yeah, and I think the, the not taking it personally part that you, you didn't say in those words, but it's clear there it can be very helpful for students as they encounter more and more um, 
just blasting or you know trolling or or things like that as they become more successful and build their online presence that's that's probably a a good lesson to take from that for them yeah i think as an artist right what is an artist without an audience or somebody to consume your work and think about your work right it's an artist and a writer is the same thing you need readers you need somebody to look at this and reflect upon what you just did and I think even the artists themselves, when they're doing their work, they're thinking about what people will get out of their piece, right? Yeah. So then they're directly putting their work and I guess ultimately a piece of themselves in this line of sight. And that sight can be a line of fire or you know, a site for praise or just inquiry, but you can't dictate how somebody's going to react. You don't have that control over them either. Just as they don't have ownership over you, you know, you have to remind yourself they don't have ownership over you. You also don't have ownership over them. So they are going to react however they are going to react. And even if you think you do have ownership of their feelings, they will quickly remind you that you don't, yeah. but they're just going to react however they're going to react. Yeah. Well, that's that's actually a good place, I think, to to leave off. Um, there's so so much more that we could discuss, and I, I'd, I'd certainly like to have you come and give other guest lectures down the line to some of my my students. I think your perspective would be particularly useful and, and helpful for them as a non-academic, you know, somebody who's who's doing things in, well, really in social media, but also in content production. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to cover? I know you had a few things that you wanted to bring up that we didn't get to. Well, I think we actually got to a lot of it. And I think for artists or you or I or any content creator who produces stuff online, the biggest thing we could take away or something we should consider is, I know it sounds funny, but the meme. Okay. Because everything you do online is a meme. And I don't mean the literal, like a picture with something funny on it, but this philosophical idea of this self-contained idea. Right. So whether it's artwork or writing or audio, they're all these self-contained units these memes. Yeah, yeah. So I'm talking about the philosophical idea of the meme. And so when you think about it in that way, this is my through line, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about all the disparate things I talk about, but I see a through line that connects all those things. Then how I connect you, me, and your students is the through line of the meme, these self-contained units of ideas. Yeah, yeah. And so whatever you do online is going to be some kind of meme or it's going to be memetic in some way. So then you have to think about, nobody's going to take the time to think of this as some kind of teaser to look at my other work. Whatever I'm going to present has to be self-contained here. It's hard to extrapolate just understanding that, how it'll benefit you, but it'll benefit you in so many ways, not just as far as self-care and how to take criticism or how to respond to the internet, but in many other ways as well, because you understand what it is that you're doing. I think a lot of feeling upset and feeling negative about yourself comes from not knowing what this game is, or comes from confusion or misunderstanding. And just understanding what the rules of this game is, is going to be very beneficial for any young person who's going to navigate the world. And the world meaning most of our world is the internet. My kid went to the aquarium the other day. And as soon as we got there, he ran directly for the TV screen <laughs> with the fishes when the tank was right next to it, because his conception of the world is fish on TV, not actual fish. Right. And I have to turn his head and be like, this is where the real fish is. My kids are older and, you know, did that as well. So my oldest is now 19 and we had similar things going to the museum. You know, they want to find the things where they can push a button or see a screen. Yeah. It's because that is their world. So yep. there's no point in differentiating internet from the world. It is one and the same. And so if that is the world, then you need some kind of code to follow and you need to know what the rules of the road are, right? And so my little thing then that I want to add at the end is to consider the meme, not consider Richard Dawkins, yeah, yeah. but just consider the meme, what that means in a philosophical sense. And good thing they have a philosophy professor that could ask about these things. But to think of whatever they do as these self-contained units, that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be a teaser or some kind of 
guide to other works that you do or a bigger idea, right? We have movie trailers, but the trailer is still self-contained. The trailer is a complete trailer. And sometimes the trailer is much cooler than the actual movie. I was just thinking about that. Yeah, people complain that this, the, the, the trailer, you know, had all this, these cool action shots in it. And uh, that's, those are the only cool ones in the movie. Because the trailer is still related to the movie, but it is still a self-contained piece of art. So I think for the artists, they have to consider that, that they have to respect whatever medium they're on. And also that the medium will come find them mm. and the medium is going to dictate their message. That's a good phrase. The medium will come find them. All right. Well, let me say thanks uh, for, for coming on. I really appreciate this. You know, I've been listening to you and following you for, for a while, and I was really happy that you would come on and, and talk for my, my students uh, about all these, these different uh, connected matters. So, yeah. Thank you. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse. Hitting with the left. South Pulse. Sam. Paul. South Pulse. South Pulse.